Chapter 27 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Frame. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 27, The End of the Middle Ages. After the popes had been in Avignon nearly sixty years, Pope Urban V made up his mind to go back to Rome. While the popes had been away, Rome had become very poor and miserable. The houses in the outer parts of the city were left empty, and the people crowded to the center of the town. One or two of the great noble families got all power over the city, until Rienzi, a young Roman, the son of a hotel keeper and a washerwoman, persuaded the people to try to set up again the old Roman Republic. He really made himself head of the city and sent messengers to the other Italian cities to ask them to put themselves under the leadership of Rome. Two princes in Germany were fighting as to which of them was really emperor. He ordered them to let him judge between them. At first, the people admired Rienzi and treated him as a hero. He lived in the greatest luxury and was full of wild plans. But at last, the people turned against him and an angry crowd surrounded his palace. He tried to escape, dressed like a poor man, but the people recognized him and killed him immediately. After this, there was still much misery and disorder, and the Romans were delighted when Pope Urban V came back to Rome. All the best people of the time were glad. The poet Petrarch and St. Bridget of Sweden and many others had begged the Pope to return to the city of St. Peter. But Urban V soon went back to Avignon. He was persuaded to do so by the French cardinals, who loved Avignon, where the popes had a splendid court and lived very magnificently. But at last, in the year 1377, Pope Gregory IX left Avignon and went back to Rome, where the popes have remained ever since. The person who did the most to persuade the pope to go back was St. Catherine of Siena. Catherine was the youngest of the 25 children of a dyer who lived in Siena, one of the beautiful towns of North Italy. When she was only seven years old, Catherine made up her mind never to marry, but to give all her time and strength to religion. When she was only a young girl, about 17, she became a Dominican tertiary and for a time lived very quietly by herself. But when her father died, she went back to take care of her mother, and ever afterwards she was surrounded by friends whom she was always helping. Great statesmen from all over Europe took her advice, for she was very wise as well as good. She wrote the most beautiful letters in Italian, which were just as beautiful as that written by Petrarch himself. St. Catherine wrote to persuade the Pope to go back to Rome, and went there herself to help to receive him. It was a very wonderful thing that the great men of the time took the advice of a woman. Everywhere she went, a little band of men and women, some of the cleverest and best of the time, went with her. And though St. Catherine was a strong and firm character, there was nothing unwomanly about her. She was full of sorrow for other people's troubles. Once, she spent the whole night with a young man who had committed a crime and was condemned to die. She consoled him like a mother, allowing him to rest his head on her breast, and soothing him and helping him to meet death bravely. St. Catherine and all the Italians were delighted to have the Pope back in Rome, but new troubles soon arose. Gregory IX died, and the cardinals elected another Pope. 
But the French cardinals said they would not have him and elected an anti-pope of their own. The pope elected at Rome was, of course, the real pope. But a great many people pretended to believe that the anti-pope was the true pope. Everyone who was friendly to France did this, while the English, who were always the enemies of France, sided with the true pope. At last, the confusion was so great that it was agreed to call a general council, a meeting of bishops from all parts to settle the question. This council met at Pisa and chose a new pope, but neither of the other popes would give in, and so things were now worse than ever. A few years afterwards, the emperor Sigismund called another council at Constance. At this council, the real pope resigned, and the other two were deposed, and then at last the cardinals elected Pope Martin V. Everybody agreed to take him as pope, and so the great schism, as it was called, ended. But all this trouble and disorder had made people think less of the popes, and a new spirit arose of disrespect and criticism, which made it easier for the men in the next century who said that the pope was not head even in religious things, as everyone in the Middle Ages believed. Already there were men who refused to believe what the church and the pope taught. In the kingdom of Bohemia, in the east of Germany, there were men who were still teaching the things that Wycliffe had taught in England. Like Wycliffe, they were educated men, not ignorant people like the Albigensians and most of the heretics of the earlier Middle Ages. They knew how to write and argue about their opinions, and so they were very dangerous to the church. The chief of these new heretics in Bohemia was a teacher at the University of Prague, the capital of the country. His name was John Huss. The Council of Constance was anxious to bring order into the church as well as to settle the question about the popes, and John Huss was called before to give an account of his teaching. The Emperor Sigismund gave him a safe conduct, that is, a promise he could come and go safely, but Sigismund broke his promise. The council treated Huss in a very rough and angry manner. Things which he had written in his books were read out, and he was commanded to agree that they were heresies. But he would not. For a month, Huss was kept in prison while the bishops tried to persuade him to give in. Everyone knew that he was a good and holy man, but the council thought that he should give in to the church. At last, in spite of the emperor's promise, they said he must die. When he was tied to the stake with the wood piled up round him ready to burn, he was again begged to give in, but he answered that he had taught what he thought right, and that he died joyfully. Then he was burnt, and his ashes were thrown into the Rhine. His great friend, Jerome of Prague, was burnt soon afterwards. But in Bohemia, their followers still went on with their teaching. Even when Sigismund led a crusade against them, the Bohemians, under their leader John Ziska, fought desperately. Ziska was really a very terrible man in spite of his courage. He was blinded first in one eye and then in the other in two different battles. But he would get his officers to tell him all about the land where a battle was to be fought and then would tell them how to arrange the army. But he was terribly cruel. His enemies told a tale of how once he fastened several priests up in barrels and then had them covered with tar and set on fire. When he heard the shrieks of the priests dying in dreadful agony, he said, Listen to the bridal song. In the end, after Ziska's peace was made, the Hussites got their own way about most of the things for which they had fought. The Hussites always declared that they belonged to the Catholic Church, 
but they were in many ways like the Protestants of the 16th century. In the Middle Ages, no one had been sorry for heretics when they were burnt. But there were many people now who were sorry for John Huss and his friend, and this was a sign that things would soon change. Meanwhile, England and France had begun the second part of the Hundred Years' War. Richard II of England, the brave young king who had faced the peasants in the Peasants' Revolt, married a little French princess and had made a truce with France. But Richard II ruled England badly in the end and was deposed and probably murdered in prison by Henry, Earl of Richmond, who was called King Henry IV. During Henry IV's reign, two great parties began to quarrel in France, and while Henry IV was ill, his young son, who was also called Henry and afterwards became Henry V, sent help to the party of the Duke of Burgundy, who were called the Burgundians, while the side they fought against were called the Armagnacs. Henry IV died soon afterwards. He had never been a happy king. It seemed as though he could never forget his cruelty to the handsome and unhappy Richard II. People had never really loved him, but his son, Henry V, was loved by everyone. He was a very brave man and very religious. He seems to have believed that he really had a right to the crown of France, and at the very beginning of his reign, he made up his mind to try to win it. The king of France at that time was mad. He was called Charles VI. His son, the Dauphin, was friendly with the party of the Armagnacs, and the people of the south of France liked them best. But Paris and the north of France preferred the Burgundians. In the year 1415, Henry V sailed with a great army to France. He marched through the north of the country until he was faced by a great French army near the village of Agincourt. Here the famous Battle of Agincourt was fought. All during the night before the battle, the French soldiers drank and played while the English slept or prayed. In the morning, Henry stood before the army with his jeweled crown on top of his helmet and spoke to his soldiers. Then he knelt down before them all and prayed aloud for victory. The English army still had many archers, while the French still went on using great numbers of horse soldiers, as in the battles of the first part of the Hundred Years' War. King Henry put a long row of stakes in front of his army, wide enough apart for the archers to pass between. Then they went forward and shot a great shower of arrows into the French army and ran quickly back again. Then the French horsemen dashed forward but could not pass between the stakes. Those at the back crowded onto the front lines. The horses sank into the soft ground and there was the greatest confusion, while the English archers killed hundreds of men and horses with shower after shower of arrows. Once again, it was seen how the ordinary Englishmen could defeat the great feudal lords of France. After the victory, Henry sailed back to England. The people were so delighted and proud that at Dover they could not wait for the ships to come to the shore, but dashed into the sea as far as their waists to meet the king. In London, the people went nearly mad with joy. All the church bells rang merrily as Henry rode to St. Paul's to give thanks for his victory. Soon Henry went back to France and won victory after victory, and at last in 1420 the French king and queen were persuaded to sign the Treaty of Troyes. Henry was to marry Catherine, their daughter, and he was to be king of France when the mad king died. The whole of the north of France agreed to this, but the Dauphin would not give up his rights, and the south of France took his side. Henry was fighting on the River Loire when he died, at the age of 35 years.
The English people have always thought of him as a hero, but after all, he had no right to France. His wife Catherine had had a baby son who became king of England and was called Henry VI. For many years, his uncles went on fighting in France for him, but the English never fought so well when Henry V was dead. Joan of Arc And now, a very wonderful thing happened which saved France from the English. Three years before the Battle of Agincourt, there was born in the village of Domremy in France a little peasant girl named Joan. She was brought up like other little peasants to say her prayers and do her sewing and to help look after her father's sheep. But from the first, Joan was not quite like other little girls. She was merry and good-tempered, but often while the other village children were playing their games, Joan would go quietly away into the woods near her home to say her prayers all by herself. All the time she was growing up, she heard stories of the terrible sufferings of the French people through the dreadful wars with the English. Always she was full of pity, as she said, for the fair kingdom of France. Then while she was praying in the woods, she thought she heard voices telling her to be very good and that she had been chosen to save France from her enemies. Then she thought that St. Michael and St. Catherine appeared to her. Joan felt very frightened at the thought that a poor girl like her had to do these great things, but at last she made up her mind that she could not refuse. Very seriously, she told her friends about her voices and begged to be taken to the king. It was for this that I was born, she said gently and rather sadly. At last her uncle took her to the governor of a town near, and when he heard her story, it was settled that she should be taken to the king. For eleven days she traveled to reach the court. The nobles had heard of her coming, and some of them were inclined to make fun of the poor peasant girl. The mad king was now dead, and it was the Dauphin, who became Charles VII of France, who was now the rightful king of France. Charles was plainly dressed, and stood among a little crowd of his courtiers as Joan went into the room where he was. There was nothing to show that he was the king, but Joan went up to him at once and fell on her knees before him, saying, I am sent to you by the king of heaven to tell you that you shall be crowned king of France. Even the mocking courtiers began to think that the maid, as she was soon called by everyone, had been really sent by God to save France. The English were then besieging the great town of Orléans on the river Loire. If they could only take it, they thought they would be able to win the south of France as well as the north for the young Henry VI. The king said Joan could lead the army against the English. She was given a suit of white armor to wear and a beautiful white horse to ride on and she carried a beautiful white banner with the lilies of France embroidered on one side and the face of God with angels kneeling before him on the other. The French soldiers were full of love and respect for Joan and followed her gladly. When they reached Orléans, nearly all the forts around the city had been taken by the English, but Joan soon won them back. She was wounded on the first day, but rode on just the same. The French soldiers knew that she was a saint, but the English said she was a witch. They were frightened of her, and this made it easier for Joan to win. The English in the end fled away from Orléans, and the town was saved. Then Joan begged the Dauphin to go with her to Reims and be crowned, for in the cathedral there the French kings were always crowned. And so he did. Joan knelt in the cathedral full of happiness, for now that the king was crowned, she knew her work was over. 
Her voices had told her to save Orléans and to take the king to be crowned at Reims. Now that this was done, she was ready to go back and look after her father's sheep once more. But the king would not let her, and his officers, who did not like Joan and hated that she should have command of the army, did not want her to go either because she was too useful. They made her lead the armies against the English in the north of France, but she no longer had any belief that she was doing God's will. At last, she was taken prisoner by the English and was given up by them to the Bishop of Rouen, who was a Frenchman, but on the English side. She was now told that she was to be tried for being a witch. She was taken time after time before the bishop with his court of priests. Time after time she was asked question after question about her voices. The bishop tried to make her say they were from the devil and not from God, but Joan felt that this was not true. She was kept in prison and grew very ill as the trial went on, but she always answered sensibly and wisely. And though the cunning bishop tried often to catch her in some mean way, she never once made any slip, always answering simply and to the point. Sometimes, indeed, her answers were so witty that they made the bishop seem very foolish. At last, when she was very ill, Joan signed a paper agreeing that her voices were not from God. But afterwards, she was sorry and held to her word again. Then she was condemned to die and burnt as a witch in the marketplace of Rouen. As she stood tied to the stake, she said once more, Yes, my voices were from God. And then as the flames rose up around her, she bent her head, saying, Jesus, and died. An English soldier standing near was heard to say, We are lost, for we have burned a saint. The French people long after said that a white dove rose out of the ashes of the fire in which Joan of Arc was burned, and that it was the dove, peace, which she had brought to France. For though Joan died in this terrible way, her work went on. The French soldiers could never forget her, and the English too were always haunted by her memory. It was not long before the English were driven right out of France, and only the town of Calais remained to them of all they had won and lost in the Hundred Years' War. Joan of Arc is now looked upon by the French, and other people too, as one of the greatest women who have ever lived. The church has called her a saint, and in the marketplace of Rouen, where she was burned, may now be seen the statue of the girl of 17 who gave her life to save France. In England, even before the French War was over, things were very miserable. Henry VI grew up to be a very weak man. It seemed as though he had almost inherited the madness of his grandfather, Charles VI of France. Henry was very religious and fond of learning, but he had no idea of how to govern the country. One of the great dukes, Richard, Duke of York, made up his mind to get the crown for himself. He fought against the king and shut him up in prison, and at last Henry said that Richard should rule England for him while he lived and be king when he died. Margaret of Anjou, the king's wife, would not hear of this. She meant her son, the young Prince Edward, to be king after his father, as was right. For years all the great nobles in England fought, some on the one side and some on the other. The wars were called the Wars of the Roses, because the Yorkists wore white roses and King Henry's side red. King Henry died miserably early in the struggle, and the poor little Prince Edward, whom Margaret had tried so hard to protect, was killed on a battlefield. Richard, Duke of York, was killed too, but his son Edward became king as Edward IV. 
Nearly all the nobles of England had been killed in the Wars of the Roses, and King Edward IV was able to rule England more strongly than any king during the 15th century. Parliament, which still met, had grown very weak now that there were so few nobles to lead it. From the time that Edward IV became king, the kings of England were almost despots for some hundreds of years. Parliament met, but only to do what the king told it. Edward hardly ever called Parliament together at all. But at the time, this was quite a good thing for England. The people wanted peace after so many years of war abroad and at home. Even during the Wars of the Roses, the middle class in England had gone peacefully on with their business and trade. Towns were getting larger and new ones were growing up. Things were growing more orderly than they had been in the Middle Ages. When Edward IV died, there was a short time of trouble. His two little sons, the elder of whom should have been king, were shut up in the Tower of London and probably killed there by their uncle, who had made himself king and was called Richard III. But he did not reign long. The crown was taken from him by Henry, Earl of Richmond, who belonged to the family of Henry VI. He fought with Richard, who was killed in the Battle of Bosworth Field, and was crowned on the field with the crown which rolled down from the dead king's head. The new king was called Henry VII. He was the first king of the great House of Tudor. He ruled England very much as Edward IV had done, and in his time the Middle Ages seemed to come to an end in England. Great new changes were coming near, which seemed to bring the beginnings of modern times. In France, after the English had been driven out, the kings grew more powerful too. Charles VII, the dauphin whom Joan of Arc took to Reims to be crowned, got an army together of the middle classes of Frenchmen, like the English armies, and no longer depended so much on the great lords. Charles VII became almost mad like his father before he died, but his son, Louis XI, went on with the struggle against the nobles. He was a clever and cunning king, but not a good man. He tried hard to get the lands of some of the greatest French nobles for the crown, and even sometimes murdered people who stood in his way. He was naturally cruel, and it was said that he even shut up some of his enemies in iron cages and kept them there for years. Louis had a long struggle, especially with Charles the Bold of Burgundy. In the end, he won Burgundy for the French crown, but Flanders and the Low Countries, the lands to the north of France which are now called Holland and Belgium, and which also belonged to Charles the Bold, went to the Emperor Maximilian, who married Charles's daughter Mary. Louis XI left the French crown very strong and powerful for the kings who came after him, and in the next century the kings of France were despots like the Tudor kings of England. In France, too, this change seemed to be the beginning of modern times. End of chapter 27, The End of the Middle Ages